Hi, my name is Stuart Alsop, and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom. Today, we have a special interview, uh, one with Dr. Cameron Seppa, who is a doctor at UCSF who specializes in psychology, particularly in something called acceptance and commitment therapy, ACT. So in our first episode, which you can find on iTunes uh, by searching for Crazy Wisdom and looking for the interview with Dr. Cameron Seppa, was about the science behind what stress is and what it does to our bodies and minds. Today, in this episode, we're going to talk about something called ACT, uh, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. It's a new form of therapy, a new approach that Dr. Cameron Seppa has been both using clinically and studying at UCSF. And he's had a lot of experience in its contemporary called CBT. Uh, and what ACT does, I'll let him explain it more, but um, there, it's a behavioral treatment that includes exposures. Uh, and the ACT has a different philosophy behind it besides CBT, but I'll, I'll, let, I'll let Dr. Cameron Seppa talk more about that. Um, I really hope that you enjoy this episode. Uh, please let me know what you think. Uh, and if you do enjoy it, please find us on iTunes and give us a review and hit the subscribe button. Thanks. Have a great day. I want to get into uh, the, the modality that you're using, ACT, and, mm-hmm. and, how, and also CBT, because you've had experience delivering both, correct? Right. Yeah, yeah so I, I train the psychiatry residents. Um, I've trained them in both. Um, and it kind of goes back also to your question about symptom reduction. So, um, by the way, both are highly effective. Um, therapies. In fact, I was involved with two clinical trials at UCLA comparing the two for anxiety disorders. Um, they both seem to work equally as well. So I won't I won't tout one as being better than the other. It's not you know the evidence support, supports sort of both of them. And at the heart of them, they're they're both kind of behavioral therapies, and that's probably the effective component of why they both work. Mm-hmm. But they do have um, very different approaches to um, what they look like, what they feel like, and, and perhaps even how they work a little bit um, outside of the behavioral aspect of it. And I'll talk, talk more about that. So in, in CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, symptom reduction may actually be a stated goal, right? So a client may come to me and says, my anxiety level is um, um, an eight out of 10, and I want it to be a four out of 10. And a CBT, you know, um, psychologist may say, okay, we can, we can work on that. Right. And that, that, in fact, let's put that as the marker for success in act, um, symptom reduction is not a goal, uh, of therapy. And in fact, if someone walked into me and we were working in that modality and said, I want to cut my anxiety in half, I would, you know, gently challenge that and actually, um, work with the, the client to, um, maybe realize over time that a that's uh, probably not realistic mm-hmm. um, and b it's actually counterproductive mm-hmm. and that's sort of the the radical um, uh, you know perspective that sort of act takes that I think is actually very different than both CBT and even some pharmacological sort of um, approaches where um, the focus is very much not on mm-hmm. sort of symptom there um, symptom reduction um, so, um, I can talk a little bit more about, um, ACT, but let's, let's talk about CBT first and then I'll sort of, um, provide ACT as a, uh, sort of a counter example to that. So in a, in a cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT model, um, the sort of belief when it is, when it comes to anxiety, that there's, 
um, it comes from sort of a distortion in thinking, mm. right? So as we talked about, you know, it's not just physiological stress, but you know, stress doesn't come out of nowhere. It often comes out of your appraisal of the situation outside of acute life threatening situations of, of, you know, bears and cars, you know, um, threatening your life. A lot of it is just, uh, okay, I have this meeting with a boss Mm -hmm. and I'm predicting it's not going to go well. Mm -hmm. So the first sort of distortion in our thinking is, um, overestimating the likelihood that a bad thing will happen. Right? So an example I just gave, if I have a meeting next week with my boss, Oh my God, is he, is he going to fire me? Is this, is this meeting uh, going to go poorly and he'll think negatively of me? Um, you know, more oftentimes when you have people with high sort of anxiety, they're way overestimating the likelihood. So the treatment for that is you help them try to think more realistically about the situation. So if, you know, we were working in a CBT modality and someone brought up that, um, that example of feeling dread about that meeting next week, um, we might ask them, well, how many times have you met with your boss? Be like, all right, 50 times. How many times has he fired you before? None. Um, how many times has it gone really sour and he thought negatively of you? Maybe once. Um, and you're like, okay, so 49 out of 50 times it hasn't happened before. Why do you think it's going to happen on this 51st time? And the, and so doing this like Socratic dialogue, people are like, oh, okay, maybe I realize I'm a little bit, uh, you know, um, thinking too negatively about this situation. The other major distortion, though, that people have is that they um, underestimate their ability to cope with the situation, which is, yeah, it's happened once before. It may, in fact, happen, although I would say statistically that's a 98% odds that it won't. You have a 2% probability that the bad thing will happen. But even in that 2% probability that it happens, okay, let's say your boss doesn't like what you present and, and thinks a little less, less negatively of you. Um, how can you cope with that? In fact, you said it happened one time before. How did you cope with that? Mm-hmm. And so the, the client might say, well, you know, I uh, apologized, you know, for I was feeling kind of off that day. Um, but, you know, I, I came back and did, did my normal work and bounced back to my normal level of performance. And, you know, you forgot about it. So you're like, okay, well, can you do the same thing with this time? They're like, yeah, I guess I could. And you're like, okay, what if he gets really, really mad this time? What else could you do? are like, well, I guess I could work extra hard and try to make up for it. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a great coping strategy, right? So you enhance people's self-efficacy in terms of their ability to cope, mm-hmm. which is even if that um, you know terrible negative thing happens, they can de-catastrophize it. Mm-hmm. So people are usually catastrophizing and think this terrible thing will happen and that it's going to be way worse than it actually is. But also underestimating their ability to just deal with terrible things. Like mm-hmm. I said, human beings are incredibly resilient. We unfortunately don't give ourselves enough credit uh-huh. um, to sort of doing so. So that's a very like um, cognitive um, sort of therapeutic uh, approach. Um, and it can be helpful. But, you know, as you were talking about earlier in terms of flexibility, in my experience, um, that works well with people who are sort of verbal and intelligent mm-hmm. and kind of flexible about the way they think. There's a lot of folks who aren't. They're very mm-hmm. rigid about their thinking, and it can, t- the if, if it's not done very skillfully or artfully, it can sort of turn into a debate mm-hmm. and almost feel a little bit invalidated. And you're like, oh, you're telling me I'm thinking about this wrong, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, that's not you know what you're trying to get at. It's more like, does this way of thinking help you or harm you, right? Is this really working for you? Mm-hmm. And if that's not the case, would you be open to? trying a different way of thinking, right? So if you do it in that kind of gentle way, I think sometimes people are open to it. Mm-hmm. But um, it's challenging, like doing the sort of this cognitive, it's called cognitive restructuring or mm-hmm. cognitive reframing. Mm-hmm. I think it is incredibly helpful if people are willing to do it and willing to practice it. 
because what happens is they sort of internalize it over time mm -hmm. and um, do it a little bit more automatically where they're sitting there 30 minutes before the meeting, their anxiety levels is going up and they're like, oh my God. And then they're like, wait a minute, what did I learn to do? Oh, okay, I'm feeling this way because I'm thinking that it's going to go bad. And there's not a lot of evidence it's going to go bad. And even if it does, I can deal with it. And then they calm down, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So if it's used in that way and it generalizes to people being able to do it in different situations and on their own, mm -hmm. um, I think it can be incredibly helpful. But so here's the interesting thing. They've done a bunch of these sort of component analysis studies. And what it really means is they're trying to understand, you know, in therapy, there's many different parts of therapy, a lot, a lot of different components of therapy. They're wondering what's the effective component of it. Mm -hmm. So cognitive behavioral therapy has this cognitive component, which I discussed, and also this behavioral component, which is um, practicing behaviorally going out and encountering the things that you fear. So mm -hmm. if it's um, like, for instance, speaking to an authority, a person in authority like a boss, you'd actually like try to practice that as much as possible. You might go to your work and say, volunteer to give a lunch and learn or, or mm -hmm. other sort of situations where you're put on the spot in order to practice that and experience that habituation that I mentioned where that fear response, which may be an eight out of 10, may become a seven out of 10 the second time, six mm -hmm. out of 10, so on and so forth. So it sort of uh, becomes sort of uh, extinct over time. Mm -hmm. Now they've done these studies where they do pure cognitive therapy mm. versus cognitive plus behavioral mm. therapy. Um, and it doesn't seem, or, or just like versus behavioral therapy and it, without the cognitive component, um, it doesn't seem that the cognitive component always adds a ton actually to the efficacy of it. Yeah. Sort of my, my sort of speculation, this speculation is that um, partly it is because of individual variants. Some people respond much more positively to it. Mm. Some people are much more rigid and don't really change their thinking. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's probably a little bit hit or miss on the cognitive side. Mm. It's not to say that it doesn't have value. I just think it, it may be a little bit more individual. But, that behavior um, but the behavioral piece mm. does work incredibly well. Mm -hmm. And so the way that I think about it is the point in my opinion, in fact, of all the cognitive therapies or approaches is just ways of getting people to do the behavioral component, yeah. right? <laughs> Which is the scary part. You're like, wait a minute, you're telling me to volunteer for a lunch order and that's gonna make me feel anxious? No, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> and you're like, well, okay, let's do the cognitive reframing part and be like, oh, okay, it's not gonna go bad, I can deal with it. And so when they do that pre that cognitive preparation work, they're like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm now I'm willing to actually do that. Mm -hmm. And because they're willing to do that, then they often get better because um, you know, uh, because exposure actually works on a neurological level. That's the thing that people don't necessarily appreciate is it's not just a psychological thing. You can do this in rats. You can teach a rat to be afraid of something like a fuzzy bunny, uh, right? If you pair it with a negative sort of um, association and then uh, like a shock or something like that. And so they're like, oh, every time I see this bunny, I get shocked. This is a terrible, you know, fuzzy bunny. Um, and then you show it the bunny uh, like 10 times after that without a shock. First time it's scared because it's learned that association. Second, third, fourth time it learns, oh, there's nothing to be afraid about with bunnies. So you can, and anything that you can um, learn, any fear response that you can learn, you can unlearn as well. And that actually happens literally on a neurological level. Um, so with or without any change of appraisal. Um, that sort of happens on a little bit more of a psychological level. Mm -hmm. And there's even fMRI studies they've done when doing exposure therapy, for instance, with patients that have OCD, where they compare an SSRI, a medication mm -hmm. that changes your serot serotonergic levels, mm -hmm. versus exposure therapy. It actually seems to change the same 
part of the brain in terms of the um, the neurological response to it. So, um, it, but that tells me it's wow. inc- it's an incredibly powerful intervention. It literally changes your brain wow. to change your behavior, especially doing it in this very um, systematized sort of way. Mm. And uh, how, what are the tips or tricks that you've used to bring that into your clinical practice to work with somebody who might be rigid uh, to try to get them to do that behavioral part? Yeah, so if, if that's, you know, the keys, like how do you get people to do the behavioral part or exposure, mm-hmm. that's part of, part of the reason that I like sort of ACT mm-hmm. is because it takes a very different approach mm-hmm. to getting people to do sort of exposure. Um, and, and part of it is it makes an argument, and I think this is actually true for even the DSM. So the DSM is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. It's kind of the Bible of psychology and psychiatry in terms of literally um, lists the how do you diagnose someone. Here, here are the, all the criteria in order to do so. But for every single disorder, whether it's anxiety or any other disorder, um, you cannot have a disorder unless you have significant distress or impairment. Mm-hmm. So for instance, if you're having panic attacks, and panic attacks are incredibly uncomfortable physiological sensations. In fact, the first time most people have a panic attack and they don't know it's a panic attack, they end up in the ER because they're thinking they're having a heart attack, attack yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And then the doctor's like, no, we've done all these you know, uh, physiological tests. You're not, you don't have a heart attack, you're having a panic attack, go see someone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so here's the, here's the interesting thing. You can have five panic attacks a day, mm-hmm. But if, you, if it doesn't bother you and you still are living your life, you do not have a disorder. Uh-huh. Now, it's an unfortunate situation, but you do not have a disorder. Uh-huh. What develops into a disorder is when it really like, oh, my God, this is terrible. Um, it's, it's causing a lot of distress. And you start avoiding things. Mm-hmm. So this is what we call agoraphobia. Mm-hmm. Right? People who have panic uh, attacks, they're like, oh, wait a minute. I'm afraid of having one when I'm driving. I'm going to get into an accident. I, thus, I stopped driving for years. Mm-hmm. Or I'm even afraid to leave the house because I'm going to have a panic attack. I'm going to fall over. It's going to be very embarrassing. Or I might fall and hit my head. Right? Mm-hmm. They start developing these sort of anxious predictions. And then it becomes a panic attack becomes panic disorder, mm. right? So if you think about it that way, uh, anxiety is not pathological in and of itself. It's the response to anxiety or how we relate to anxiety that's the problem, right? And so that's the nice thing about ACT is in ACT, uh, it, it considers like, you know, life is has all these uncomfortable things. Life, there's, there is inevitable stress in life. You will probably have anxiety uh, if you care, right? In fact, I always tell the clients that I work with, the only way that I know to get rid of anxiety completely, mm-hmm. besides like literally numbing it away uh, pharmacologically, I, yeah, you can obviously drink to excess, but that's obviously not a great... Um, it off too. Yeah, it's, yeah. And exactly. It's a short-term solution, not a long-term yeah. solution. Um, is um, I, I, I describe it as the, the flip sides of the same coin, mm-hmm. right? If you care deeply about something, right, you really want to do well at work because your career is a meaningful part of your life, mm-hmm. Of course, you're going to have anxiety about it, right? The only way, so I asked them, I'm like, look, if you really want to get rid of your anxiety, if that's your agenda, you walk in, you're like, I want it to go from eight, eight to a four. I'd be like, great. The only way I know to do that is you have to stop caring about your work, yeah. right? Uh-huh. Or if you have social anxiety, the only way that I know for you to not have any social anxiety is to not care about people. Mm. Are you willing to not care about people anymore? Mm-hmm. Of course not, right? Or you could avoid it all. But yeah, also, but that's yeah. also a terrible. So you're like giving, you are you are essentially yeah. giving up on people by avoiding people. Um, so if that's not the solution, if you're not willing to make that devil's bargain of literally giving up, and quite frankly, the only people I know who experience zero anxiety are psychopaths, mm. right? People who have antisocial personality yeah. disorder because they don't care about people, and so they don't have much response. And that's obviously not what we're trying to 
um, engender or create um, with people. We're, what we're trying to do is, is help change their relationship with their, anxi- their anxiety. So one of the interesting interventions in ACT is actually um, helping people realize that they have what's called a change agenda, mm-hmm. meaning that they have this agenda to want to get rid of their anxiety. In fact, they're, in fact, that's why they oftentimes come into treatment. Mm-hmm. They're like, I feel way too anxious. I want to get rid of it. And so what I want to do is to actually um, not have them feel hopeless about themselves, right? I always want to empower people and make them feel hopeful about themselves and their lives. But I want to actually paradoxically make them feel hopeless about their agenda to get rid of their anxiety, mm-hmm. right? And, and we'll go through. So one of the first things in terms of the uh, interventions that we do is I'll, I'll have them document. I'll be like, tell me everything you've done to try to get rid of your anxiety. Let's go through step by step. Like, tell me the eight strategies, mm-hmm. the last things that you've done. How well has it worked in the short term, right? They're like, okay, I, I drink in social situations. Great, does it work? They're like, yeah, it does reduce it in the short term. But then there's, oh, you know, what are the consequences of that? You know, well, uh, sometimes I'm not as acute, aware or socially, you know, charismatic because I'm kind of drunk or um, tipsy. Obviously, long term, it, it has health consequences. I get hungover and, and my anxiety doesn't seem to go away over time. And then more importantly, like, does that help you live a richer, more fulfilling life to Mm -hmm. to drink? Mm -hmm. Obviously not, Mm -hmm. right? And so they document every single thing that they've tried um, and and talk about whether it's worked or not. And for Mm -hmm. most people, most things don't really work and that's why they're sitting there in front of you, right? And and I'll even say, you know, the the see a psychologist is is the the ninth strategy Mm -hmm. and I don't want to be complicit, (laughs) right? In this agenda to get rid of their anxiety. So if they almost become a little bit hopeless about, all right, well, if this, if you can't get rid of your anxiety, like, short of, you know, giving up on people or mm-hmm. the thing that you care about deeply altogether, what's the alternative, mm-hmm. right? So the radical alternative is um, actually what I call befriending the enemy, mm-hmm. right? Which is people see anxiety as this enemy, this this thing they need to conquer. And there's literally books out there. It's called Conquering Your Anxiety. It always makes me cringe a little bit because I'm like, it's not your enemy, conquer it right? <laughs> now, at the same time, it may not be something that you like uh-huh. or want. Mm. right nobody likes feeling anxious i don't like feeling anxious mm. you know what i mean if i if in a perfect world i could you know we didn't have to feel it i don't think most people would so mm. you validate people and say yeah you know I'm, nobody likes it but if you're if it's gonna be there anyway mm. right if you're inevitably gonna have anxiety because it comes out of your caring which is a good thing mm. are you willing to have what you're going to have anyway, mm. right? And we, we sort of hit this home through using sort of metaphors and stories because, you know, our brains are much more tuned to stories. So I'll, I'll tell like, a, I'll do a sort of quick version of it, but uh, I tell a story about sort of Brian the bomb. Um, imagine that you like moved into a new neighborhood and you uh, did a like a, a neighborhood welcome party so you can meet your neighbors. And you said, put up flyers all over the neighborhood saying, everyone's welcome, right? And so everyone could, you know, on a Saturday afternoon comes in and uh, including the, the resident homeless guy, Brian the Bum. Oh. And you, you're kind of ambivalent about it, but you, he has a flyer in his hand. He said, <laughs> everyone welcome, right? And yeah. so you, you're like, okay, just come in and just don't ruin anything. Uh-huh. So you go off and you try to you know, be a good um, host to your guests. And, uh, but you hear Brian in the background like smashing your, your, your crystal vases and you, you come up and you yell at him and you're like, get out of my house. You know, and so you kick him out. And so temporarily, kind of like drinking, uh, it fixes the situation, mm. right? But then Brian comes back <laughs> half an hour later, sneaks in with some other neighbors, 
Um, and then, you know, he's like harassing one of the neighbor's wives. He's like spilling food all over your place. And so instead of being there at your party and being a good host, you're just trying to triage this situation and deal with Brian, right? And so you kick him out. He sneaks back in through the back door or the window. And you're, you're just kind of going back and forth all the time trying to deal with this situation. And at some point you realize, what am I here for, right? I was throwing this party in order to be a good neighbor, to meet new people, to socialize. But I'm spending all my time fighting this enemy mm. um, and it's taking away from my purpose here mm. so even though i don't like brian the bum being here and I, I wish he wasn't but if he's gonna be there anyway can i welcome him in um not begrudgingly but even just sort of embrace him say look like come on in mm. you're welcome and it's not the perfect situation mm. so i think you know that metaphor is a metaphor for how do you deal with sort of anxiety um, and sort of radically welcoming it um, and I think that can be incredibly transformative for people who spent most of their lives um, numbing, fighting, suppressing, distracting, procrastinating uh, their way out of anxiety. Mm. Uh, and much to the detriment of being able to enjoy the party that is their life. Mm. Interesting. So um, I know uh, we're going over a little bit on time here. Um, do you have any hard stops? I'm fine. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I, I wanted to get a clear, clearer definition of ACT because mm -hmm. I think we talked a lot about the different ones. And then also I'd like to talk about chronic pain because uh, that's something that I've personally dealt with and you mentioned it in your outline. Mm -hmm. um, so for yeah. the ACT, what is a, like a concrete kind of a similar definition you gave to uh, CBT before ACT? Yeah, so in, in, in kind of a cognitive therapy, like I said, symptom reduction may be an acceptable goal along with improved coping with mm -hmm. that. And so on a cognitive level, um, you know, uh, CBT sort of believes that um, it's this distortion in your thinking. That's the problem, right? So you make sort of personal, global, and stable attribution. So what I mean by that is, let's say you failed a test, right? And you're like, boy, I'm stupid. It's personal. It's global. You're like, I'm, I'm bad. I'm stupid at everything. Mm -hmm. um, and quite frankly, it'll always be this way, right? If you have that kind of personal, global, stable um, style of thinking, you're obviously going to be very down on yourself and you're more likely to be depressed, right? Mm -hmm. So obviously you do some cognitive restructuring around that so that you can think in a more flexible and adaptive way. Um, and so on the, and then on the behavioral part of it, you might um, uh, take sort of situations that are perceived to be sort of threatening mm -hmm. and you do that exposure. So you say, okay, let's practice you taking an exam. Um, if that's anxiety producing, you have test performance anxiety, let's say. Um, over and over again until that uh, anxiety response decreases sort of over time. So you're going to experience that extinction through that um, exposure. But in ACT, we say it's not the distortions in the thoughts that's a problem. It's the relationship to them, right? And that we're very um, sort of fused with our thoughts. We take our thoughts to be literal truth. Um, we tend to focus too much on the past, right, which is kind of, uh, what you see with people who are depressed mm -hmm. or focus too much on the future, which you see with people exactly. who are yeah, exactly um, have anxiety or, or worry. Um, and we also buy into our um, story, right? What I mean by that is our sort of sense of self or ego. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, all of this is um, basically leads to um, what we call experiential avoidance, which is sort of the um, not wanting to experience thoughts, feelings, sensations, and memories, mm. um, and also behavioral avoidance in terms of avoiding people, places, situations um, that do these things. So um, the treatment then is not change the way that people think, but change their relationship 
to thinking. Mm. Um, and so it also takes a behavioral approach like CBT in terms of doing exposures. But the goal with exposures is not the extinction, actually. Now, we know on a neurological level that that will probably happen anyway because it's sort of an automatic sort of thing. Mm. But the goal of exposures is... Um, it's uncomfortable, as we said, right? Like if I have to, if I have social anxiety and I have to ask out a woman, there is a fear of rejection. It's understandable and normal. Um, and it may be uncomfortable, quite frankly, to be rejected. So the question is, what makes dealing with that pain worthwhile? And usually there's a value that makes that worthwhile, right? Which is like, if I want to have a relationship, I want to eventually be um, you know, a loving partner um, by finding someone, then can you sort of bring that, not just to mind, but bring that to heart? And in that present moment where, you know, your mind is saying, oh boy, this I'm going to get rejected. This is, I'm feeling terribly anxious. Screw this. Why, why don't I just not talk to her? Mm. You think about, okay, what is the deep, meaningful value behind why this is worthwhile that makes the pain worthwhile? Mm. The pain literally of life, right? Mm. So um, I would describe ACT as sort of a mindfulness and values-based therapy. Mm. So one of the things that it does, um, there's sort of six components of it, is um, uh, use mindfulness or, or um, meditation is sort of what I describe as the formal practice of mindfulness. People sort of associate it with like sitting on a cushion, you know, with a timer. And you can do that. I, that's like the analogy of sort of going for, to the gym and doing formal exercise. But you can do mindfulness um, in your everyday life, right? So some people that I encounter, like just they don't, they don't like doing the formal meditation practice. That's fine. You can you can just practice when you're doing a task to just really put your full attention mm-hmm. on it. Mm-hmm. And when you're sort of drifting off, practicing coming back to the point of focus. And I think this is a really important thing because unfortunately I think people use mindfulness actually in a counterproductive way. Mm-hmm. So there's all these meditation apps and I think they're actually great resources, mm-hmm. but literally some of them are called Calm, <laughs> which is <laughs> which is not the point in fact of mindfulness and actually would be the counter to sort of the philosophy of that where it's not to calm down. I, in fact, I tell my clients when we're introducing mindfulness, the point of this is not to feel better, mm-hmm. but to get better at feeling. Mm-hmm. That's a very subtle thing. It's not to f- feel better, but to get better at feeling in the sense of, look, you may feel more relaxed after doing a five or 15 minute mindfulness exercise. I would consider that a bonus, cherry on top. Maybe you'll feel worse because you've been distracting yourself with your work and by sitting still, you're gonna have all those anxious thoughts pop back up yeah. and that's okay. Uh-huh. It's not a failure. But it, what it helps people do is stop getting sort of lost in the past and present and be able to be more present. And when they're able to do that, then uh, they're not so driven sort of by these thoughts. Mm-hmm. And they can, in the present moment, have a more flexible choice about what I want to do in that moment, mm-hmm. right? That we call this sort of the thought action repertoire. Most people totally go on autopilot. And like when they encounter that, that stressful situation, like, oh, avoid, I've done this a hundred times, right? Because they're on autopilot. But when you're in, when you're truly mindful, you're truly present, you may notice that tendency and be like, yep, every time I see a pretty girl and I want to go have a conversation with her, my automatic response is to run away. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's, that's what my mind is telling me to do. Do I want to do something differently? Mm-hmm. Freedom. Yeah, the freedom to do something differently. Mm-hmm. Um, the other part of it is, um, it's called ACT or acceptance and commitment therapy is, um, as opposed to doing experiential avoidance, Mm -hmm. um, where you're sort of, uh, maybe drinking to not feel anxious is to accept that. Now I usually hate using the word accept because in sort of English language, it has a connotation of suck it up. 
right? And that's the worst thing. Can you imagine a client coming to you and say, I want you to help me with my anxiety? And you're like, wait a minute, just accept it. And you're like, thanks. <laughs> that What kind of terrible advice is that? Yeah. Um, but it's, it's not. So I actually prefer the term willingness, uh. right? So um, one of the analogies I make is like, almost imagine like two volume knobs, right? So the anxiety may be, let's say an eight out of 10. And that's the knob that the person's focused on getting down. I just want to get it down to like, maybe like a two out of 10, right? But they're not even aware there's this other knob and I call it the willingness knob, mm. which is um, your willingness may be a two out of 10, your anxiety is an eight out of 10, and the difference between those two is your suffering, mm. right? So eight minus two is six. Now, not only do you have anxiety, but now you have suffering because you're not willing to have to do the thing. Uh, anxiety, yeah. Yeah. right? Mm. It's, it's this unpleasant, it's this Joe the bum's there and he's pissing you off in your house. Mm. So instead of trying to reduce your anxiety, what if we try to increase your willingness to have it? So that theoretically, if your willingness was an eight out of 10 and your anxiety is an eight out of 10, your anxiety is exactly the same, but your suffering is zero, mm. right? Because you're willing to have what you're going to have What's anyway, there, yeah. right? So that's actually the intervention. And that's what makes people more willing to do exposures, mm. right? Because if you can work on people's willingness, no matter how uh, difficult mm. the situation is or how anxiety producing it is, you're like, yep, I can, I can deal with this. Mm. I can deal with the, um, the discomfort. The other part of it is, is as opposed to this restructuring that we talked about in cognitive therapy, it's, it's, it's helping people sort of defuse or deliteralize from their thoughts, mm. right? So there's kind of silly ways of doing this. Like um, if, if someone has a sense of humor, you can like um, say the thought like uh, um, I'm unlovable, which has a very strong emotional resonance, right? If someone says I'm lovable and believes that, mm. they feel bad, right? You feel sad when they... But if you say it really slowly, if you say it really um, quickly a hundred times, uh, if you say it in a Mickey Mouse voice, uh, it literally deliteralizes the language mm -hmm. and it doesn't have that same emotional resonance. So that's a very concrete mm -hmm. sort of example of that. But really it's almost like a little bit of like distancing with a thought. You don't have to change it. You don't have to debate it. You don't have to necessarily even think differently about it because if it's especially a core belief, mm -hmm. right? Someone's like, I'm unlovable. It's gonna take probably a lot of therapy to mm -hmm unwind that mm -hmm. but in the meantime you can just be like oh okay i noticed that there's there's my mind doing what it does again making me feel bad mm -hmm. or maybe it's even in a parentified voice maybe i learned that from my mom who was kind of uh, unfortunately not very loving and taught me that i'm unlovable right and be like okay i i hear that i it's coming from my mind and um yeah, but it's not the truth. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not sort of reality. It's not literal. So the more that people can sort of distance themselves from it, um, that can be helpful. And so you can incorporate mindfulness or meditation as a way of diffusing. So one of the exercises, for instance, we do is it's called leaves on a stream where you take uh, an unhelpful or negative thought and you just kind of put it on a leaf mm -hmm. and you imagine it floating by on a stream uh -huh. where you're like, oh, there's the unlovable thought. It's floating by. I don't need to change it. I don't need to push it away. It's just going to normally come. It'll go. Maybe it'll pop back in my mind. Uh -huh. That's okay. But doing that sort of visual imagery around it helps people just sort of like compartmentalize it um, and defuse it um, a little bit. The other sort of um, intervention is what I call um, the observer self, right? Mm -hmm. So um, defusing is sort of um, deliteralizing thoughts, but uh, the observer self is almost deliteralizing your story or your narrative mm -hmm. about ourselves, mm -hmm. right? All of us have this sort of story about 
um, ourselves, right? Like I, I could have a story about, oh, I'm a doctor and I'm a professor and that comes with a certain sense of obligation or responsibility. Mm-hmm. And if, if something happened that threatened that, you know, that might threaten my ego, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Or I have to be right or I have to be a professional or I have to be all these things, right? Versus there, there's a part of us, and this is a little bit more experiential, mm-hmm. where we can all sort of observe this story happening and mindfulness or meditation practices can be helpful and just be like, okay, yeah, that is that is my narrative. That's my story about myself. But that's not me, mm-hmm. right? And there's a part of me that I can sort of watch and transpire this um, going on. And there's there's fun exercises you can do where you can you can get people to like imagine themselves seeing through their 12-year-old eyes, mm-hmm. their 20-year-old eyes, and the present eyes. And obviously they've changed physically from those ages. Maybe they've even matured and changed their values. But there is still a part of them that has continuity mm-hmm. through all that. Mm-hmm. You're still the same person to some extent. The essence of who you are is still the same. And so no matter how much you physically, even psychologically change, the observer self, the part of you is always there. And when you can get people in touch with that, mm-hmm. um, then uh, when they have this sort of narrative violation, they get fired from their job and they're like, who am I if mm-hmm. I'm no longer a doctor, right? And that's my self-worth is tied up in that. Like no, I'm I'm still there. Mm. I'm still human. I'm it's, that's who I've always been. And that the, so that was the hardest part for me. In you know, I've been doing practice of meditation for the last ten years, and only in the last year or so have I gotten to the point where I can notice what is the thing that is observing those thoughts, and how can you talk more about how you get people to that to that realization? Because I read about it for a long time, mm-hmm. like the observer and the observed. But it didn't make sense until mm-hmm. I until I worked with, with somebody who taught me how to do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I try to do it as experientially as possible because mm-hmm. you. I mean, the challenge is we're talking about this on a podcast, yeah. and so we're we're, we're yeah. verbal. We're, I'm trying to verbally describe something that's quite frankly much better done, mm-hmm. much better experienced, mm-hmm. I should say. Mm-hmm. But I'll, I'll give you a concrete example of an exercise that I really like to do. Um, it's called take your mind for a walk. Mm-hmm. So it's something I'll do with clients, where especially if they're like really in their heads. Um, I'll talk about, I was like, you know what, it's not just me and you in this room. There's actually four entities in this room. Interesting. It's you, <laughs> your mind, me and my mind, uh, right? And so you almost like externalize the mind, right? And you say, okay, there's, there's actually four of us. And so we're going we're gonna to practice taking your mind for a walk. And so I, I, I probably get to know them pretty well at this point mm-hmm. and um, know a lot of their negative thinking. Yeah. And so I'm like, I'm going to play your mind. So we're going to go for a walk <laughs> and for the next few minutes. I'm going to just like basically be that, that nagging critique of a radio in your head <laughs> and just be like, Oh, you're unlovable. And like, Oh, that pretty girl's over there. You'll, she'll never go for you. And, and you'll literally verbally sort of go through this and you also tell them what to do. Be like, go left, go right, go ahead. Mm-hmm. And you're sort of controlling them mm-hmm. as their mind, right? You're like the dictator that tells them what to do and they have to go along with it right whatever you say and you know you obviously do this in an ethical way (laughs) Um, and so you do this and then um, they get that experience of essentially being controlled by their mind or being very fused with their thoughts as we talked about and then I say okay for the next few minutes I'm gonna do the same exact thing I'm gonna be that annoying critical negative voice in your head but you listen to me you can't shut me up you're gonna literally hear me right you can't mute me but choose, but do whatever you want, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm sitting there nagging them. I'd be like, go left, go right. And they're walking straight ahead. And it's a crazy distance they feel. They're like, wait a minute, my mind is telling me left, right. I can literally hear it. It's annoying, mm. but I'm choosing to do something different. Mm. And experiencing that, right? Doing that exercise m- makes it very vivid to people. It'd be like, oh, wait a minute. I can hear the same thoughts, but I can relate to them differently. 
Um, and so that's a great way of sort of hitting that uh, lesson home mm-hmm. in, a, in a very sort of deep and experiential way. And people remember that. I literally have clients who I did that years ago and they'll email me and be like, I still remember that <laughs> taking over my mind for an exercise. So I, I try to take my own mind now for a walk when, um, uh-huh. uh, you know, he or she is not being very helpful. The other fun thing you can do is um, there's, a, there's another metaphor called passengers on your bus where you can treat um, not just your mind as one entity, but multiple passengers or characters in a bus, mm. right? You got like the annoying backseat driver. You have the person who's super critical. You have the person who's like the party person. And so mm-hmm. um, there's different almost like voices that you can sort of, you, you can name them, you can label them, you can describe them in certain ways. Um, and they're all sort of like pushing you to do different things or drive your bus in a different direction. But mm-hmm. obviously the trick of the whole thing is that you're the bus driver, you're in charge, mm-hmm. you're the only person that can control the gas and the brake and the steering wheel. And so no matter how much they threaten you or distract you or tell you to go in a certain direction, um, you just recognize that, oh, yeah, yeah there's Wanda again, who's the, mm-hmm. the one who tells me to procrastinate whenever I have an assignment. But like, thanks, Wanda. I, I, know what, I, know, I know what you're trying to tell me to do, but it's really important for me to head in this direction and not get distracted, mm-hmm. right? So it, it related to your question about chronic pain, mm-hmm. um, I used to work with a lot of chronic pain patients and still have some some as well now. Um, and it's obviously literally painful to get them to do, especially behavioral stuff that um, induces or re-triggers their pain, right? Mm-hmm. And in, in my experience, the only thing that makes that worthwhile is to get them um, to, to be very clear and in contact with their values, mm-hmm. right? You're like, yep, going and exercising is probably going to make your pain worse. Absolutely. In your experience. Right. Um, but is there something that makes that worthwhile is playing with your grandchildren and being a loving grandfather, uh, important enough that you're willing to, to suffer quite frankly, the pain mm-hmm. and feeling that deeply on an experiential and emotional basis, getting people in touch with that, um, can be incredibly motivating. Mm-hmm. Right. So in act, the reason we, we, um, talk so much about values and get people in contact with their values and feel their values and even clarify them. So if they don't know their values, then we, we sit there and be like, explore that. Let's find out what your values are and how to prioritize them is because then when you bring it very close to home and very close to heart, then it will motivate them to do the things they need to do that they've been avoiding, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and most importantly then to take committed action because in the end, that is a behavioral therapy and you're like, okay, once you know what your values are, great. How much are you spending literally minute by minute, day, hour by hour, day by day, living in congruence with their values, right? If you say being having meaningful relationships is important to you, are you actually doing that? Are you investing in your relationships? Are you trying to find meaningful relationships? When you're spending time with people, are you acting in a way that is loving, if that's the, the type of a partner that you want to be? Mm-hmm. Um, and if not, then let's work on that. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. And it seems with chronic pain, it goes back to that same thing with anxiety. The chronic pain will probably be there for a long time. So it's helpful to switch from I want this pain to go away to I want to be willing to, to, to experience this whatever is here with me right now. And that, that happens to be pain and might be for a long time. Yeah. And, and that's a great point. And I think that comes full circle in the conversation in the sense of um, obviously if there are um, medications or acupuncture, other mm-hmm. approaches that help provide some symptom relu- reduction without excess side effects, great, use them. Like I always say, just do what works mm-hmm. or do what's operative um, with the people that I work with. But um, 
if you have a chronic pain syndrome, it is not going away, even though you wish it did, and I, I would wish it did for most people. But if it's going to be there anyway, um, then it's then how how can I change my relationship with it, right? Where I almost make an analogy. It's like it's like a, you wake up one day and uh, someone played the world's most horrible prank on you and attached this heavy ball and chain to your leg. Mm. And no matter what you do and how many locksmiths you go to, you can't get it off you. Mm. And you, so you feel pissed and, and uh, you know, you've been violated and there's this huge sense of injustice when you experience, you know, especially when you have an accident. I work with a lot of you folks who are young and just like active and surfers and they encounter this terrible physical accident and they they develop chronic pain and it kind of feels like that ball and chain was yep. imposed on them mm-hmm. but the question is do you begrudgingly drag it behind you and and, and you know keep swearing and mm-hmm. being pissed off at, at life in the world and, and refuse to go anywhere because you have this ugly heavy ball and chain mm-hmm. or do you take this radical approach of picking it up and carrying it close to you mm-hmm. Right. And people just like they're they kind of blows their mind when they really experience that because they're like they've been fighting the pain so much. Mm -hmm. And you're like, yeah, I wouldn't wish you have it either. But if you are if it's stuck, that ball and chain is going to be there. What would it be like to actually pick it up and embrace it, Mm -hmm. literally embrace it right close to your chest? But then wouldn't it make it a little bit easier walking around? Because at least you're not you're not weirdly limping or dragging it. Right. (laughs) But it's close to you. And yeah, it's heavy. Yeah, it sucks. Absolutely. It does. But now your your legs are a little bit free to kind of walk wherever they want to without mm-hmm. burden, right? Mm-hmm. And you're carrying it in your hands. You're carrying it on your shoulders, perhaps. So better weight distribution. But it's exactly <laughs> that better weight distribution. Yeah. And I, that's a perfect visual metaphor for the, the radical approach that ACT takes, both with anxiety and with pain mm-hmm. or any sort any of psychological or physical yeah. discomfort mm-hmm. or distress. Mm-hmm. Is is um, you know when you take this approach of changing the way that you relate with it, it, it frees you, right? Mm. So I always say the patients or clients that I worry the most about are not the ones that are the most anxious or mm. depressed or even in pain, but it's the ones that um, have the least psychological flexibility, right? Because anxiety and depression, moods and pain come and they go, or sometimes they're chronic, um, but it's the people who deal with things in a very rigid, inflexible way mm-hmm. that I worry the most about mm-hmm. because something will happen and then they just can't cope mm-hmm. with it. So the goal of ACT is not um, necessarily reduction of any of those things, mm-hmm. but it's an increasing your psychological flexibility to deal with all of them mm-hmm. in the pursuit of a meaningful and fulfilling life. Mm-hmm. So in fact, my measure for success in working with a client in an ACT paradigm is are you getting, are you spending more of your time uh, living your life in a way that's rich and meaningful, mm-hmm. right? It's nothing to do with your pain, nothing to do with your anxiety, but um, do you feel more fulfilled uh, and are, are more congruent between what, you're, what you believe to be important and you're acting in a way that uh, makes those things important? Mm-hmm. Regardless of all the other Regardless stuff. of it, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not to actually be happier, happier in a hedonistic, like, euphoric woo-woo kind of way mm-hmm. um you know sometimes you'll feel happy sometimes you won't mm-hmm. but contentment or satisfaction is different right mm-hmm. uh it's a, it's not an emotion it's a deep-seated sort of um, appraisal of like yeah life is good no matter how hard it is mm-hmm. right or my, my life is meaningful or worthwhile no matter how much pain i feel there's still something that i'm here for that makes uh, all of this pain uh sort of uh worthwhile interesting 
So that sounds like a great place to stop, but uh, how can people find out more about you? How can about your practice, about what you're doing? Yeah, um, just reach out to me um, on probably LinkedIn. Okay. That is probably the easiest way. You can just look up my name, Cameron Sapa. Um, I'm active on social media too. I'm on Twitter and um, uh, other sorts of things. So I'm happy to have people reach out, um, whether it's for you know working with me um, as a clinician or yeah, being a guest on a podcast or speaking at um, other th- sorts of things. Um, one of my values is is um, you know the re- part of the reason I even became uh, got into healthcare in the first place is is the alleviation of human suffering, mm-hmm. and you know you can do that directly working with people, mm-hmm. but you know the beauty of um, the social media era that we're in doing podcasts like this, and obviously now working in tech both as an entrepreneur and investor is how do we scale these things? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of my early life was focused on working one-on-one, one-on-one and yeah. now I, of course I still do that, but it, but now I try to do have impact in a very scalable way. Mm-hmm. So I'm happy to work with people um, in that capacity as well. Cool. Thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. Thanks for tuning into the show. If you liked it, please go ahead and find us on iTunes or Spotify and hit the subscribe button. I'll publish each episode by Monday morning before your commute, so make sure to check in then. And this is a reminder to just own your crazy, because the challenges that this world will be facing over the next hundred years will require us to think way outside the box. As Hunter S. Thompson said, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Thanks. Have a great day. Thanks for tuning into the show. If you liked it, please go ahead and find us on iTunes or Spotify and hit the subscribe button. I'll publish each episode by Monday morning before your commute, so make sure to check in then. And this is a reminder to just own your crazy, because the challenges that this world will be facing over the next hundred years will require us to think way outside the box. As Hunter S. Thompson said, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Thanks. Have a great day.